Hello everyone, you're in it, and this is Dave Birnbaum. We're still in our first few episodes of the show, and I wanted to address the topics that we are covering. My work on haptics has brought me in contact with people in a lot of adjacent fields, such as immersive technologies, content, advertising, medical devices, gaming, automotive, etc., etc., and On this show, we're going to have people who are active in all of those fields. The intention is not for the show to just be about haptics. On the other hand, the haptics industry is gearing up for an event in early December called Smart Haptics. It's in its third year, and it's a trade show and conference that is specialized for the haptics community, and in particular, the people and the companies that are active in commercializing haptics. There are a couple of other major conferences for haptics that have a huge following. Haptics Symposium and World Haptics and even CHI. But those tend to have an academic emphasis. There's a lot of interesting technologies coming out of those conferences and being shown. They're not always commercialized, though. Smart Haptics is different because it's really for people making a business. And so the people that come to that conference are big tech companies that have groups working on haptics within them, haptic startups, and kind of everyone in between. Since so many of the people who are going to that conference are gearing up to give lectures and talks and show demos, I thought it would be a great opportunity to bring them on the show, as well as expose them to other thinkers in the haptics field. So the next few episodes will be about haptics. You could almost think of the first season of this podcast kind of specializing in that. But just to let you know, we do intend to move beyond that topic and integrate other ones in the future. Now about today's guest. Actually, today's guest is unique. I don't know that there's anyone else doing the work that this person is doing. And I refer to David Parisi. He's a professor of media studies at the College of Charleston. I've known him a few years. And what's interesting about David is he's a media historian who is specialized in haptics You know, when you think about haptics, you think about a technology or an interface. You don't really think of it as having broken through that barrier and becoming a type of media that people just consume. But in fact, David's research has shown that that is the case and has been for, believe it or not, hundreds of years. David recently wrote a book called Archaeologies of Touch. It's available on Amazon and we have a link in the description, including a discount code if you'd like to purchase it. And in this book, David goes through the history of haptic media and explains its origins and the forms that it's taken over the years. In the beginning of the conversation, we reference a hurricane that was threatening David's home. That was Hurricane Dorian back in September. Luckily, everything turned out fine. So without further ado, Dr. David Parisi. We're doing it. (laughs) I know, finally. (laughs) A hurricane later. So what happened with that? You had to leave your house and run away. Did you have like a bug out bag that you used? How did you pack up your car for that? This is uh, is five years in a row that we've had to evacuate. Wow. So we are, we're pretty ready for it now. Um, And you usually have like a week of notification before you have to go. Like it's not like you're running 
as the storm is coming in, like <laughs> you have like plenty of lead time. So it's it like yeah. a, a wall of water and you're yeah. running faster than it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you have a routine down. You're like, Oh, it's, it's just one of those times where you have to get out of here. So let's do this list of things. What is, what are those things? Totally. Just, um, pack up the car with anything important. If it seems like it's going to be a hurricane that wipes out our house, pack up a, a, as much important stuff as we can. This one, we were very confident by the time it, it we evacuated that it wasn't going to be that bad. Yeah. So it's more just like bring all your furniture in, anything that can blow away and turn into a projectile bring that in the house, yeah. lock everything up and, and go. So, Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the thing. Last year, uh, two years ago, we had fires close enough to our house that, that, uh, we had to pack up the car, although I was traveling. So, uh, my wife had to pack up my kids and all their stuff into the car, but then they didn't get close enough to actually have to go anywhere. So anyways, yeah. Fun times. Always good about that, but at the same time, like go through a huge ordeal. Yeah. Where, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about archaeologies? Yeah, let's talk. Uh, sorry, I didn't send you notes. This week has been crazy. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you just sort of uh, freeform it a little bit. Sure. So wait. So it's been crazy because you're back at school and you teach. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that, just to start? Um, so right now, I uh, this semester I'm teaching a uh, course called Media in the Digital Age. Um, and it's basically like our intro to media studies class. Um, so we walk students, uh, mostly 97% freshmen this semester. We walk them through, uh, media history, like starting with print and then like running all the way up to digital media. Um, and then we introduce them to like the, the main theoretical issues around media, uh, reception studies, um, cultural studies, approaches to media, moral panics around the introduction of new technologies. So it's sort of a survey course of like all the um, the main issues that that you sort of confront um, with when you study digital media. Yeah, is that a new course? Uh, no, it's it's been around for God, I think at least a decade in its current oh, form. Wow. Yeah, no, you're you're probably giving it a, a slightly different twist, I would guess, with the with the focus on haptics and embodied media. Uh, you know, I, I bring that in a little bit, but really, like it's it's a it's a fairly uh, everyone puts their own stamp on it. Um, but it's a fairly straightforward classic. If you that took this class at another university, it'd probably be taught relatively similarly, just because there's sort of main concepts that um, the students need to get introduced to. But I definitely my goal, I tell them, is to um, you know is to make this weird for them, right? These media that they've grown up around. My students are you know eighteen. Um, they've had iPhones basically since they were what, like, uh, 10, 12. Yeah. So that is completely normal, right? That's their environment. And I'm trying to get them to understand how weird it is to live in that environment. That's interesting. It reminds me of something my wife told me. She's a, um, she focuses on technology for schools, but, um, she also runs their digital citizenship program at, at, at a school and, she routinely blows the minds of tweens and teens that the internet is as recent as it is. Many of them think it must be at least, I don't know, 50 or a hundred years old. It's like mind blowing that the internet didn't exist until recently, let alone touchscreens and oh. all these other things. And so, so that's really weird. Yeah. That's, my students think the opposite. I think my students, my students think the internet is newer than it is. I think if I had to sort of generalize huh. uh, or they think that, 
they think that social media was such a radical new invention that it marked the the new internet off from the old internet in a way. It's a thing that I hear them say Hmm. a lot. Didn't it though? Uh, I mean, I think it, it was sort of a, a, a mutation of stuff that already existed. Right. So I'm thinking about, you know, things like live journal and blogs and stuff like that, that, yeah, you know, pre sort of pre Facebook social media, if you want to think of it that way. Right. Right. So I, I try to like historicize that part of like internet culture a little bit and get them thinking about, you know, I, I tell them a lot that um, the phrase they're going to hear throughout the course is back in the 90s. Right. Uh-huh. Like, oh, back in the 90s, uh, when, we, when we were first sort of struggling with what to do with this technology, we had a lot of like similar responses. Um, we we're struggling over similar questions that, that we're still struggling with today. Like we still haven't figured out what to do with this technology, I think. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll never figure it out totally, right? Okay, so you wrote this book, Archaeologies of Touch, and it sort of feels to me like a magnum opus, like it's an amazing summary of all the different things you've been looking at for many years, and it's all in one place. It's getting a lot of traction within this niche world of haptics, for sure. There's, you know, everyone's read it, everyone's talking about it. So um, I think this would be a great opportunity as we talk for you to, like, explain how the book works because it's a really it's the way that you've laid it out it's interesting you have these five or six interfaces i think yeah that describe different eras of tactile and haptic technologies and how people have related to them so so how does that work yeah so i thought you know i i i I thought that i would use this idea of interface sort of playfully right and this and the idea is you know not to think of interface as a thing but interface is a process mm-hmm. um, so if we look at you know the, the the act of collecting an archive around haptics itself is a mode of interfacing with history um, how does that how do we define those different uh, how do we chop up those different periods of historical periods around the development of of uh, touch technology um, so I think uh, my structure, could very easily, if someone wanted to do this a similar sort of project, they could cut cut it up in d- different ways than I did. Uh, so part of my challenge was to figure out like what are the what are the significant um, inflection points? What are the significant transitions when it when it shifts from you know one mode of understanding touch to another mode of understanding touch, or one mode of technologizing touch to another mode of technologizing touch? So of course there's you know, whenever you do this imposition of form onto chaos, um, you're going to necessarily, it's not going to be precise, right? So what I tried to do was come up with, I had this archive that I thought started, um, initially when I started working on the project, I thought the archive started in the early 1800s. The connection to electricity was one that I came to a little bit later in the project. And then I realized that that archive really went back to the, you know, to the uh, mid 1700s. so it was a real kind of challenge to figure out um, what endpoints to put on each of those interfaces. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the structure. I can walk you through each of the five, if that would be. Yeah, would be yeah. Helpful. Well, so to, well, let's by way of background. So you so you have made an academic career studying haptics as a media from a media studies approach. I don't know that anyone else is really doing that. And when I first met you, I was amazed because for me it was like it like legitimized this space. I've, you know, I've always kind of felt that haptics should be regarded as a medium um, and not just a, 
uh, technology. And you're the first person to kind of treat it that way. And I don't, I don't know anyone else is really thinking about this. And so for, for you to have like laid out these eras so carefully with, with so much thought and, and research behind it, I mean, this is the, this is the baseline now, like you're the way that you describe the eras of haptics, like this is something that we should all understand, you know, and if we have ideas for how to tweak it or add to it, that's fine. But like, no one's done this before. So you've laid out this landscape. I just want to say like, as far as I know, has anyone ever done that before? Were you working off of criticizing another uh, landscape of haptics or was this the first time this ever been done? I, I thank you sincerely for those kind words about the project. It's really nice to hear someone from, uh, you know, from your world comment on the book in that way, um, because this this book, you know, when I conceptualize a project um, first as a dissertation and, and later on as a book. Um, I was very hopeful that people in, in, in your world would read it, but I was like not optimistic about it just, you know, because we tend to be compartmentalized in our, in our own little worlds. Um, so it's really nice to hear that it's, that it's having that, um, that, that impact um, in terms of the, the sort of originality of the project or what I was building on or what I was pushing back against. Um, I was trying to, uh, I was looking at the sort of state of haptics as it existed when I began the project, which was, you know, uh, early 2000s, 2002, 2003. Uh, and I think there was a lot more optimism around the field at the time, right? Like it seemed to be a moment where the technology was still like full of promise. And and there was a lot of sort of, over, I think, overpromising being done around the technology at that moment. So at the time, it see, the story I thought I was writing was a story about the triumph of haptics technologies and then some of the problems around that triumph, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of in the intervening years, as I continued to research it, as the field developed, I don't think it sort of achieved that triumph that's sort of perpetually been forecasted for it. Um, so some of the work that I was um, that I was sort of in conversation with is the sensory studies literature, which very much tries to historicize uh, the senses more broadly than. Um, than seeing and hearing. My, my field, media studies, does a really good job with historicizing visual and sound media. Um, and part of my project is to convince them that um, touch is a sense with a distinct set of, of me- associated media, that we can historicize it the same way that we've historicized image and sound media. So it's sort of the theoretical aim of the project, the, uh, the intervention I'm making in my own field. Um, and then what I started to realize as I looked at the history of touch, the way that it had been written by mostly by psychologists, uh, was that it, it was a very linear history. Um, first, we discovered this. Then we discovered this. Then we discovered this. Right. And scientific history, I think, tends to sort of forget its own origins a little bit. Right. Like once you make a discovery, why look at the discoveries that preceded it, the wrong theories that led you to the discovery of the right theory? Because they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and scientific history, I think, tends to tends to do that. Um, and when I looked at the engineering literature around haptics, there was some really good stuff. Um, uh, Bob Stone's piece, uh, which I can't remember what year it was published, but it was uh, something along the lines of uh, haptics, a potted history. Um, that was sort of laying out some of that um, historical uh, scaffolding. Um, but again, I thought that I thought that it was too sort of technicist. I thought it was too scientific, too focused on a history of discoveries. Um, and so I thought we could maybe build. And then the, the other part about this is the sources seem to be scattered. 
right? And um, the sources that people were drawing on were not necessarily easily accessible. So one of the challenges for me was to gather all those sources together, put them, you know, literally put them on a table in front of me and try to map out how they related to one another and really dive deep into those texts rather than just taking their discoveries as sort of facts, look at the process by which they came to discover those facts and try to relate those experiments together in series from basically the 1740s to the, you know, the, the, um, the research that was being done at the time I started working. Yeah. And, and I think maybe the history of touch as a sense or as a modality of, of interface uniquely needs this kind of treatment just because I almost feel like instead of a, um, a sequence of discoveries, we're continuing to define touch change the definition in new ways and like add things to it, subtract things from it. And so it's almost like backwards. It's not that we're, we're studying a natural phenomenon and we name that phenomenon. It's that we, we have this concept of touch that we bring with us from, you know, ancient times, medieval times. And then we're constantly adding and subtracting from what that concept is. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, that's dead on accurate. And I think that trying to find those uh, moments of transition, right, where that definition changes substantially is what, what's really exciting to me about doing this work um, and really exciting, you know, not just about studying the work uh, historically, but also about studying the, the field as it continues to develop and sort of waiting. I mean, I think I think you and I probably share this um, uh, share this feeling of anticipation around the field, um, you know, the longer you spend in it, the longer you spend studying it, that you're sort of waiting for these shifts to occur, right? And and part of the fun uh, and excitement, but also the room for like, for me as a media historian, the room for more critical work is when those shifts happen, mm-hmm. right? And trying to kind of identify uh, and name them. You know, one of the things that happened as I was finishing writing the book is, uh, you know, Oculus was re- released for sale, the Vive was released for sale, um, and all of a sudden we saw like a renewed interest in haptics for VR, which had been kind of dormant um, for about 15 years at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you saw like a lot of new research being done um, in that area. And that that to me was was a moment of excitement. But it was also a moment of excitement that I couldn't really chronicle because it was happening just as I was finishing up. Right. And I, uh, so sort of the, um, the risk of writing about. Uh, any book about new media is that it's it's sort of obsolete by the time the ink is dry and they're at the printing press, right? Um, because you have this sort of time lag. Yeah, um, I, de- but I definitely th- struggle with that. This book is never going to be obsolete because you're like you said, you started in the, the 18th century. So so wait, so walk us through the interfaces. Yeah, okay. Uh, so so the first interface, uh, what I really tried to organize it around and theme it around is the way that touch was used as. Um, as a mode of knowing electricity. So the conventional histories of electricity tend to focus on electricity as a visible phenomenon, right? As something that you can see and the genealogies tend to emphasize the emergence of electric light um, in the 19th century as one of the main um, points of development, um, the emergence of the telegraph uh, in the earlier, early in the 19th century, um, the ability to transmit writing um, through, uh, through electricity. So these tend to be like very conventional, uh, media studies uh, com- focused on what we understand conventionally as media um, histories of electricity. And I started looking at some of the uh, there's really excellent history of science literature on the history of electricity. And I realized that um, touch and shock were really essential in those early experiments on electricity. So it seemed to me that there was um, something that I understand as a tactile epistemology 
at work in early experiments on electricity. You had to touch electricity in order to know that it was real. Um, yeah, no, and you also you also needed to kind of imbibe it or somehow ingest it and have it come through your body. And there were all kinds of purported health benefits to this as well. Yeah, you have this this long history of uh, using electricity as medicine, and, and really uh, that, that comes into maturity in the later half of the 19th century. But it's present uh, in the 1700s, late 1700s as well, because. Uh, early in electricity's history, they don't know what to do with it. Like it's this scientific curiosity with no practical application for basically almost a hundred years. Hmm. Um, and so the first, uh, the first use of electricity, practical use of electricity, is as a medical uh, technology, and it's wildly ineffective at doing what people say it does. But the fact that it has that cultural life and it has that cultural stat- status as a therapeutic technology, I think is really important if we're, especially if, uh, if we put that in context and relate it to the way we talk about haptics today, right? We very much talk about haptics as sort of a therapeutic um, a therapeutic technology, right? It's going to heal your body. Um, it's going to relieve some of the stresses that have been placed on your body by, um, by image and sound technologies, right? So I think there's a continuity there that was really important to me to, to try to bring out. And there's these amazing pictures in the book of like there's like a bathtub full of electrotactors that you're supposed to sit in and it's going to, it touches you many different places and it's just inputting electricity all over your body. It's fascinating stuff. I, I love the pictures. I love that, you know, you were able to include so many illustrations because, um, it really brings to life the story. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting visual rhetoric around the technology that I wanted to, that I wanted to capture, you know, and it's, um, I think, Again, part of the the goal is to to make it so that we don't think of haptics as a, as necessarily a new thing, right? We tend to treat it as this exciting, crazy thing that we've never had before. Um, technologized touch is a new thing. Uh, these are new experiences that are historically unprecedented. And part of what I wanted to do with the electricity material is show that uh, you know for 150 years it was relatively commonplace, um, especially in experimental and scientific cultures to touch electricity uh, in, a, in a really routinized and really structured way. So it wasn't just sort of haphazard. Um, the, with, the medical, uh, with the medical electricity, there are really in-depth, you know, thousand-page manuals teaching you how to apply medical electricity and teaching you um, what sorts of uh, sensations the patient is supposed to experience, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I look at this, again, very much in continuity with something like um, uh, uh programming language for a haptic device, right? I think those are very, very much related uh, related technologies and related rhetorics. Right. Well, wait, so after the electrotactile, what is it called, the interface? It's the, uh, the, the electrotactile machine. Yeah. So so that then that era closes, and then what do we have? So so these eras sort of overlap a little bit. Um, okay. in, in my mind, the key turn is uh, going from using... Uh, using touch as a way to know electricity, so touch as an epistemic agent or an agent of knowledge, um, to turning electricity and other experimental and scientific techniques inward on touch um, to try to reveal new knowledge about touch. So uh, the way that I try to frame that transition is uh, first uh, first touch was used as a mode of knowing electricity, and then electricity was used as a mode of knowing touch. Um, and what I find really fascinating about this is it's right in 
Um, Alessandro Volta, in the, the letter that he writes about how to design an electric battery, it's right in that letter. Volta says, my battery is not just a, an object that generates power, but it's also an object that can generate knowledge about physiology. And he learns that by basically applying his battery all over his body. He puts electrodes in his ears. Um, he, he touches, he tastes electricity. And he says he learns new things about the senses from that repeated, you know, structured application of electricity. And that sort of sets up this century of experimental work um, on touch that results in the, the emergence of really this new field of, of haptics, right? I mean, this is in, you know, the 19th century haptics is a field of late 19th century haptics is a field of, uh, of psycho psychological research uh, att attempting to understand the sort of microprocesses of tech that underlie tactile perception. And, and you call it like a cartography, right? So it just becomes about ferreting out all the last things we don't know about the skin and how you and where you feel things and how much you feel them. And it just becomes kind of this, it's almost like, um, like in, in a video game where you, you, uh, the map is dark and it, you can only see where you've been. Right. So I almost feel like this, this era is all about just like, you're just covering the entire map with, with experience until you can finally kind of see the whole thing and there's no dark spots. Is that kind of the, what, you think people were thinking about? Absolutely. That's, that's an absolutely appropriate way to describe it. And it's really like an enlightenment project in the most literal sense of the word, right? Trying to shed light on new areas of, uh, of knowledge about uh, human experience and experimental psychology generally does that with the senses in the 19th century. And it's been chronicled in my field really extensively around vision and around hearing um, as if touch was just sort of uh, secondary or tertiary in that process. Um, and what I try to do um, through tracing some of this history is show that touch was actually very central to that that project. It wasn't just sort of an afterthought. Um, it really informed uh, that search and trying to understand, I think you, you put it really nicely, that idea of an endpoint um, as really setting up uh, research that we're still conducting, that we're still carrying out around touch, right? We still haven't revealed um, fully how touch works, right? I think it's really fascinating that when you talk to people who are actively working, you know, either in psychology or um, in interface design uh, around touch, one of the things that they say is it's really hard and there's a lot that we still don't know, right? So we're still operating in that framework that they set out. And here I, I try to use methodologically this idea that you understand experiments in, as systems, not in isolation. So each experiment sets up a whole future set of, uh, of experiments to try to uncover the gaps that the initial experiment revealed, right? Mm -hmm. So an experiment reveals new things, but it also reveals all the things that the experiment couldn't reveal. Sure. And then the next experiment tries to reveal more, and the next experiment tries to reveal more. So it sort of creates this, um, I think this model applies really, really neatly to the history of research on touch because it, it allows us to see how um, the experiments that Ernstheiner Weber, for instance, carried out in the 1830s, really primitive experiments with compass points, uh, we're still really living with the ramifications of those experiments, right? Like what's, what are the closest points at which you can put two uh, actuators and perceive a difference between those inputs, right? That's a, a question that informs the design of contemporary haptic body suits, for instance, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think also part of the, the the shortcoming of that the assumptions made around the cartographic approach is that 
you know, it's not actually just a map that you're revealing because um, there are so many other dependencies. There are dependencies on the time domain, on levels of attention, um, ambient temperature. And every time you think you have an answer in the world of touch perception, you find out that there's another dependency or there's some other quality to the experience that, that you haven't accounted for. So that, so that era, what would you call that, that interface? Um, the, the haptic, right? That is the for haptic. me like okay. very similar. Okay. Like that is the emergence of, of haptics as a mode of, hmm. of, of interfacing with the sense of touch, right? So if we think about haptics as a framework yeah. for enfolding touch and studying touch, um, I think that's the era when, when the haptic sort of emerges. But today we wouldn't, we wouldn't call passive two-point Lyman tests, we wouldn't call that haptic perception because it's a passive activity, right? So, so just like the word touch keeps changing its definition, I almost feel like the word haptic has changed over the last, you know, 50 years or 100 years. Yeah, I, I'm, so I'm of two minds on this, right? Like, I think on the one hand, um, that split between active and passive touch is really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but I think part of the challenge is that uh, people might might really doggedly stick to that um, that split and using those terms, you know, the term haptic to talk about active um, and the term tactile to talk about more passive skin based uh, modes of, of perception. Um, but I think the challenge is that in you know vernacular speech, in the way that we talk about touch, um, we often conflate those two things. Um, even people who are really steeped in um, in the psych- psychological literature, um, even people who know that that's how those things are, you know, pr- have been conventionally defined or properly defined or historically defined, um, slip really easily um, between those two meanings and, and are very comfortable using haptic as this bigger term, right? That does encompass um, the skin senses, that does encompass, um, you know, passive touch. So I, I, it's and it also makes it really difficult, right? When you're trying to explain. Uh, this this field to to people um, to talk about that with a degree of precision that's again not used very frequently um, even by people who should kind of know better right if we want to think of it in that way right yeah yeah I mean I guess you're right so if we are communicating to to people who aren't familiar with the field or with what you're building then I think it's much less important to like doggedly stick to this idea that they're different but if you're designing interfaces it's like it's it's a key part of of the person's ability to perceive an object right like mm-hmm. I mean I think I think there were I'm not sure if this was in the book but there were early attempts to create displays for people who are blind so that they can see an object, you know, like Mm -hmm. a coffee mug sitting on, uh, on the desk. And, you know, the, the contours of the outline of the visual image of a mug really have nothing to do with the haptic sense of experiencing a mug. And that was an an assumption that was kind of, it was a, it was a, it was a bad assumption that was made that you could take a picture, turn it into like physical tactile contours and that that would be easily comprehensible by people. I'm not going to run around calling foul on people who, who mix those terms. I do it all the time. And certainly the company I work for, Immersion, you know, if we paid attention to that distinction, it would drive us crazy because <laughs> it would you'd just be constantly justifying one term over another. So yes, haptics can just refer to kind of, I guess, technologized touch. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like haptic perception 
really does require a body that can move over time, explore an object over time and how it impresses on different parts of your body. I just think that that as a designer, that's been a really useful thing to keep in mind for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the critiques of experimental psychology, um, that, that you even came from within the field, right? The internal critiques of experimental psychology hone in on exactly that point, right? This idea that, um, what experimental psychology does is it creates a very artificial model of experience or, or the, the, the form of experimental psychology that emerged in the, um, in the 19th century created a very uh, artificial form of tactile experience. that doesn't reflect people's lived experiences in the world. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a laboratory model of touch, um, that's, that sort of falls apart once you try to introduce that model of touch into real world scenarios. I'm thinking of the work of, uh, David Katz, who was a phenomenologist and also an experimental psychologist. And he was highly critical of all the, the increasingly precise research on touch in, uh, in the 19th century, because it, um, it created these artificial conditions, uh, that no one would ever experience outside of the lab, right? It, mm-hmm. did, it didn't think enough about that embodied, uh, act of touching. And, and Katz was, um, a really strong proponent of studying active touch instead of, uh, and over and against, uh, passive touch. And I think he's one of the people probably responsible for, for pushing that model, um, really heavily and, and pushing that shift in terminology, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the, what was it, 18 or 1920s. Right. So wait, so closing on interface two, the haptic interface, what's next? Um, so, so next is, uh, the tongue of the skin. Um, and, and there, I, what I really try to do, it's a quote from uh, Frank Eldard who, uh, had been working done all this research in the 1940s and 1950s and onward, um, on developing tactile languages, uh, ways to communicate information, uh, and particularly for Geldard, uh, written language through the skin. Um, and for me, the, the, the key shift is the attempt to make all that research on touch useful. Uh, so very similar to the movement with electricity, uh, an attempt to take this research that had been really, up to that point, fairly just theoretical. Um, it lacked practical utility, lacked practical application. Um, this is a problem with experimental uh, psychology more generally, we didn't really know what to do with it. Like in the 1920s, 1930s, um, experimental science had been hugely useful, um, for all these other areas of, of human enterprise. Uh, but experimental psychology hadn't been incredibly useful up to that point. So what we see is an attempt to take all this knowledge that we have about touch and give it some practical utility, um, by folding it into, um, communicative systems. So initially, um, work on, um, Vibrates uh, attempts to route um, sound through the skin. Attempts to route spoken language through the skin via um, the the teletactor in the 1920s, um, and then Gildard's project, which is re- uh, uh, really in response to Robert Galt's teletactor from the 1920s, an attempt to instead of transmitting speech, an attempt to transmit writing through the skin um, with with his Vibrates project. And this is really the start of basically about a 50 or 60 year period of attempting to use the skin as a communication medium that I think constitutes a really substantial reimagination of the potential of the skin. What shocks me about that whole story is that it seems like they missed a really obvious fact, which is that people don't use the skin to communicate language at all. We do use it to communicate, 
right? We use touch to communicate with each other. Emotional interaction, even um, you know, intimacy, aggression. There's all kinds of things we do use it for, but what, something we don't use it for is language. And so I just, what what were they thinking? Like, what was the justification for going down that road? Why did why did they think it would be an effective medium for communicating language? Well, so for 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 Galt, that he was he was working uh, with he was attempting to create a sensory substitution system that would allow uh, the deaf to hear through the through their uh, through the hands, right? So it was a really for him, for him it was a he thought it was a practical solution to mm-hmm. a, a practical problem, uh, right? We this one sense is closed. How do we route messages through an alternative um, sensory pathway using like uh, Galt doesn't use the term neuroplasticity, but he's talking about neuroplasticity. Um, and what I think is really fascinating in uh, especially in in his work is there's a there's a real attempt to, to reimagine touch. Um, there's like a deep theorization of touch as sort of the master sense that all senses develop out of and emerge out of. So he really thinks of himself as kind of like de-evolving language to be communicated to through our most basic um, sense. When Gildard comes along, he says, yeah, well, you know, Galt, his problem was he was using the fingers, which are really sensitive, uh, but they're also really busy. Uh, you know, we're always using our hands. So he wants to occupy our hands, this really busy skin that's really sensitive uh, with real uh, with uh, high frequency, uh, very complicated messages. What if we use a part of our bodies that we're not actively using um, and make the messages much more simplistic? Um, and effectively develop a code rather than attempt to do sort of one-to-one um, trans, uh, transmission. And in, in both of their works, what I find really exciting is this idea that uh, they, they recognize your point, like they totally grant your point. And they say that the problem that psychology has had basically since its history is it's assumed that touch is sort of counter-linguistic, that touch can't be used to communicate language, right? So um, especially in, in Gildard, he's trying to overturn that through, uh, through the design of a system that basically empirically demonstrates that psychology had gotten it wrong through its entire history, right? So, like, in terms of the what, what were they thinking question, one of the things I, I really enjoyed about reading um, both of those, uh, both of their experimental accounts is they're very upfront about what they were thinking, right? Like, there's a practical aim, but also, like, a macro-historical conceptual attempt to give this sense that hasn't been used for the communication of, you know, coded messages, a function in that, um, uh, in that, that, that circulation of, of science. And there's, you know, there's precursors to this, right? So, um, Gildard, uh, locates his work very much in continuity with Braille, right? He says, we've already, we already have sort of an example of this being done. Um, but what if we could do it, um, using electricity and using, using Morse, um, so it's not routed through the fingertips. It's a much faster transmission mechanism than scanning a finger over a page. Mm-hmm. Did it work? Are are these are these ideas current? Do people who are uh, deaf or hard of hearing use these types of interfaces today in a widespread fashion? Yeah. So um, you know, Galt's project gets picked up um, at MIT by Norbert Wiener in the uh, late 1940s, 1950s, uh, and and uh, does it succeed much there either, um, but there was an attempt to sort of resuscitate it. Um, and uh, for the most part, 
uh, that attempt, that dream of communicating um, language through like an electrical process of coding um, and translation doesn't really go anywhere. Um, but at the same time, we do have, uh, you know, we do have attempts to use uh, vibrotactile means to, to convey uh, audio information through the skin, right? Um, so I'm thinking of like this, the devices like the Subpack. Um, uh, I just was in, uh, I was in London over the summer and I had a chance to test out um, the newest iteration of the hug shirt, the sound shirt from Cute Circuit, right? Okay. Um, that that um, that basically um, maps different instruments from an orchestra onto different parts of of the torso and the arms. Uh, so again, that attempt to like to make an end run around the ears as um, as channels for the transmission of, of sound, um, where you know uh, where vision is concerned. Um, the brain port, which is the the um, the more recent iteration of Baki Rita's tactile television, which routes um, images through the skin or draws images through the skin that you were talking about earlier, um, you know that's that's still in development, um, and I think has had a fairly limited rollout, maybe FDA approval, like um, almost a decade ago at this point. Um, so, in terms of like, did it the, did the project succeed? I think this is one of my like one of my big like methodological questions or challenges what does it mean for a technology to succeed and mm -hmm. and for haptics this is super challenging right like um, there's a sense in which i think um haptics especially maybe if we were to rewind like seven or eight years ago um, there's a sense in which haptics kind of seems seemed like a failed project for a little bit um, yeah. right like it, it seemed like a thing uh in terms of its its life in the popular imaginary, right? It had gotten all this really positive press, um, really hopeful press in the late '90s. In part, you know, because of a lot of immersions efforts, um, it had gotten a lot of uh, 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 positive and really hopeful press. Uh, and when a lot of that technology didn't come to fruition in the timeline that it was forecasted for, Habitics um, kind of seemed like a failed technology. It didn't seem like a success story, but really a story of like oh, this thing that we said was going to do this never ended up doing that. Um, but in terms of the question of did it, did it succeed at transmitting coded messages, um, I mean, I find it fascinating that, yeah, our phones do this for us all the time, right? It might not be as finely grained and nuanced um, as Gildard wanted it to be, um, but I, I remember Immersion's vibe tones from, what, 2006, 2007? Um, this idea that you would have you know, customized ringtones for everyone in your phone um, that would also have vibration patterns. So you wouldn't need to pull your phone out um, to know who was calling, right? Not just that you were getting a call, but to know who it was coming from. Um, so the question of like, do, does uh, a technology like that indicate the success of the project or does the failure of that technology to be to get talked about as a successful instantiation of haptics technology mean that the project failed? Does, does yeah, that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you that uh, people who work in haptics can get depressed because they look at the long history of awesome things that have been done in labs and we still don't have real mind share from the public and, and, you know, a lot of use cases that people are familiar with. And like you said, even if they, they do use haptics, they don't know it's haptics and they don't think of it that way. And so that's, that's kind of too bad. And we have to, we have to fix that. But I guess my um, skepticism about, I guess I'd call it symbolic information transfer through haptics, it's not so much that it doesn't work or it doesn't have practical use cases. I, I want to walk that back. I think people who are have some other sensory 
deficiency could totally learn a system like that. But for some reason, um, when I talk to people who aren't as familiar with what haptics is useful for, and I show them this technology, their mind immediately goes to, sometimes it goes to this idea like, oh, I'm going to be able to communicate secretly with my friend and, and feel their text messages. And it's like, you could do that. You need to learn Morse code though. And like, mm-hmm. you're not going to train all of your customers in Morse code or whatever, whatever Vibrates, you know, uh, language there is. And so, but in the meantime, there are all these low hanging fruit for haptic design in terms of uh, emotional communication, instinctive communication, small lexicons of types of alerts and things like that, that, that it is really good for and that we haven't exploited yet. That's actually tied to another, it's very similar to this discussion between like vibration and everything else that's not vibration being more impressive and better. It's like, <laughs> you know, you know, it's like I'm showing people really awesome use cases for advanced vibration, carefully designed vibrations that are synchronized to other modalities. Maybe they have, you know, different frequencies, amplitudes, and they're, they're really emotionally engaging moments. And, you know, I get questions like, well, when is it going to be more than just that? And it's like, well, there's lots more to do for sure, but Mm -hmm. vibration is so underutilized and it's so available to us. Let's solve this problem first. Let's get this into people's hands and get them to like it. And then, then it will come like all the investment, all the mind share, all the interest will come. Those types of things. It's like where people assume that you have to be doing many more fancy things with haptics, like communicating symbolic language or providing like advanced force feedback or, you know, fully immersive body suits. To me that all that is awesome. It's just a little bit of a distraction from what we can be doing today with the technology that we have. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. And it gets it, it gets at this, this macro level problem that um, I guess if we, if we say like that the field has, right. Is that it's struggling with all this baggage Right. It's struggling with um, 25 years at this point of of uh, inflated promises that uh, I think uh, and I I don't you know, I don't know as many people in this world, obviously, as you do. um, But I think on the ground, uh, uh, folks seem very aware of that. Right. That like the easiest challenges to solve and the most practical applications are the are the shorter term ones. Right. Um, those are where you can have the most gains and the most successes. Um, the problem is that you can't convince people to recognize all those successes as successes because they've been promised, you know, immersive bodysuits. Uh, going back to, I mean, Howard Reingold's Virtual Reality is a book, uh, you know, primarily about touch in virtual reality. It's, I would say, probably two thirds of the book uh, is focused on touch technology. Uh, and a lot of it is framing that endpoint, right? So we've we've been living with this dream um, for a long time, and and at the same time, we've been living with practical applications of haptics technology woven into our daily lives for almost as long, uh, but not taught to recognize those as haptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished an article on uh, on Rumble and uh, in, in video game controllers, sort of the history of Rumble, which is kind of the impetus for me to do my. Uh, archaeology is a touch project way way back in the day and then i went away from rumble and now i'm going back to it um sort of for a more targeted case study and one of the things i find fascinating about rumble is people talk about it as sort of a um as an imperfect application of haptics technology or a, a less than 
um, a less than adequate uh, application of haptics technology. You can find this these lines over and over again in uh, popular press on gaming. Oh yeah, Rumble, it's not really haptics. And if you talk to, or if you read uh, haptic interface designers, they'll frequently refer to it as really primitive. Um, and that, that I think does a disservice to how complicated uh, the messages are that you can transmit just through those little two motors and uh, you know in a video game controller that are distributed at this point ubiquitously. Um, and the same thing, you know, with with haptics in, um, in in cell phones and now smartphones, right? And there's a lot that we are doing that we have done with those um, with those technologies to build um, complicated systems of uh, message recognition of of uh, symbolic perception. Uh, but we first, you know, a host of reasons don't recognize those as as successful applications of haptics technology. Yeah, I don't know what to do about it, but. Uh... <laughs> So, so wait, so, uh, tongue of the skin closes with what? Tongue of the skin, um, closes with, um, there's a really, a really fantastic, uh, line from Marvin Minsky in his, uh, 1980, uh, essay telepresence and Minsky's talking about, um, he's familiar with the systems for translating, uh, images into vibrations. Um, he's familiar with the systems for trans, trans, uh, transmitting, words through vibrations and he says okay we have made machines that can transmit um that can transmit words through through uh feel we have machines that can transmit images through feel but we have yet to make a machine that can transmit feel through feel and and that's for me the the substantial turning point um in haptics research is away from uh away from those types of sensory substitution applications away from language transmission and toward uh, embodied presence in computer-generated environments, which is really the research on that starts in the 1960s, uh, arguably a little bit earlier. If you want, to, if you think about um, uh, force feedback exoskeletons as an early instantiation or precursor to those technologies, um, but but that line from Minsky really encapsulates the the shift for me nicely. Um, this turn in the research and and a material turn too, fun, uh, channeling funding streams away from um, tactile communication, tactile language research toward research into embodied um, haptic presence in VR. Um, this is a big shift that happens basically from the 70s, 80s, and, and into the 90s and is responsible for um, the emergence of this field of computer haptics and um, the formal emergence of the field in the 1990s. So um, I became really interested in uh, the emergence of of uh, haptics, computer haptics, as a, a as a distinct and self-aware field of, um, of scientific research, and then now they're more concerned with simulating haptic sensations or haptic modes of interaction that people are already familiar with, right? So now when they use a force feedback input device, they have a reference point. They're like, oh, that does feel like a texture or a wall mm-hmm. or whatever is I'm bringing from my previous experience. And that, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a really, that's a really great insight that that might be maybe the most important turning point for the history of, of haptics generally. Cause I think we're still, I think you have another interface after that, Yeah, but we're still in, we're still kind of in the world of when we talk today about VR and content, that dream that is set forth of telepresence is still in the popular consciousness. Yeah, definitely. And, and this is, you know, the challenge with the um, with the interfaces structure, right, is that they do absolutely overlap. Right. So so one doesn't necessarily 
Um, they're not clean breaks. Um, so it's not like in, um, you know, in the 1970s, we stopped doing research on tactile languages. It's just that that became deprioritized. Um, to the layman of um, Paul Bakirita has a, a line, um, I think it's in a, a book on haptics in VR, uh, maybe in the mid 90s. And, and Bakirita says it's really too bad that computer haptics and haptic interfacing has sort of sucked all the air out of my project. Right. Like he's he's very cognizant of the fact that there's been a shift um, both in public interest, but also in research funds um, away from the sorts of projects that he was working on um, toward attempts to you know, uh, fully embody tactile presence, haptic presence in, in computer generated environments. Right. So there's there's a really interesting tension between the different researchers working on these different components of the, the, these projects. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. We're we're still very much in I mean, the fourth interface is, um, sorry, tactile human machine communication that I borrowed from Michael Knowles' uh, 1972 dissertation, which is really sort of the first attempt to build um, a a haptic device that can project movement and feedback um, into and from a computer-generated environment. That's very cool. So what comes after that interface five? The fifth interface uh, is called the cultural construction of technologized touch. And there I I turn a little bit away from the sort of materiality of of, uh, interface design, although that's still in the background, to think about the project of selling haptics or convincing people that they want haptics. So the sort of um, overarching point of that chapter is um, that haptic interfaces require the production of desire for haptic interfaces, right? Like, you can't have the technology without convincing people that they want and need the technology. And that project is as much a cultural project or more a cultural project than it is a technological one. Right? That project of translating um, this research into practical terms, advertising this research and creating a need uh, in people for, for haptic technology, creating an urgency in people for haptic technology. Mm. And what are the forums that that story is being told in? I think there's touch screens, there's VR. Could you summarize those? Yeah. So in that um, in that chapter, I was really especially focused on um, on what came basically what came after the introduction of the touch screen. So I start with the DS, uh, the Nintendo DS, and, and the way that uh, even though the DS didn't have any sort of haptic uh, components to it initially, um, I'm really interested in how that involved redefining touch. And there's a really interesting campaign, the Touching is Good campaign around the DS that was telling a story about touch as a neglected modality that echoed a lot of the story that, uh, you know, that hapticians had been telling basically since the field started in the, you know, in the late 1800s. Um, so I found that connection really, uh, really fruitful. Um, and then I think a lot of the stories that Immersion was telling around uh, haptics also um, proved really valuable for me because uh, you know, they were really the only ones um, doing public-facing work. I mean, this really interesting moment, right? Like in the, uh, you know, 2005, 2006, 2008, um, we're, we're at a, a weird moment with how we communicate information. You know, if you're a company, how you communicate information to the, to the public. And Immersion had these really great white papers that were, that seemed to be sort of, on the one hand, uh, facing the public, but on the other hand, also facing investors, right? Um, and trying to do this macro level job of convincing people that haptics was sort of a must have technology. Um, and I think the rhetoric got quite dramatic um, in the process of trying to, to make that pitch, right? Like without 
without haptics, we are in peril, is effectively the story that, that Immersion told in a lot of its um, its literature. And that story sounded a lot like the story Geldard was telling um, in the 1950s. Uh, the senses are overcrowded. The senses are overburdened. What can we do to relieve this stress? Well, there's this other sensory channel that we can open up. Um, and we can open it up using this technology. And Immersion's, Immersion followed, uh, um, you know, I think probably uh, without realizing it, followed that same script that um, that Gildard had been using uh, 50 years earlier and that even the uh, electrotherapists had been using uh, in the, the 1800s, this idea of touch technology is somehow therapeutic um, and restorative, restoring this thing that's been, that's been lost and that we're alienated from. So I got really fascinated by that narrative, um, that, that, mm. that, uh, that rhetorical framework for understanding touch. I mean, I guess the way I see it as being different from what came before is that in the earlier eras, the, the haptic technology was added on to your daily experience. It was going to enhance your experience and bring you to a new level. Like you're going to imbibe electricity through the skin and somehow be more than before. Right. Whereas it's funny because you talk about the dramatic um, rhetoric and I, I do relate to that and I'm not at all disinterested because I work for immersion. Um, <laughs> but part of the reason I'm so bought in is because I really do believe that it's not so much that the other senses are overloaded and we need to offload to the tactile sense, but that as animals, we're used to a certain amount of tactile interaction that we're now starving for um, in kind of the digital age. And Constance Klassen mm -hmm. talks about this a bit, about the starvation of the touch sense in, in kind of new media world where we're constantly surrounded by image and sound. There's nothing there to feel. And so we feel like technology itself is alienating. And so I kind of relate to that message that haptics is one of the ways that we can get back to a more natural and, well, a more comfortable, natural, healthy relationship with technology. I think you probably think of me as being inside something looking out. You know what I mean? Like I have certain biases and expectations. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that message? Is that resonating with you? So my, my training is as, uh, you know, as a cultural historian and as a media historian. So um, when I hear narratives like that, my immediate uh, my immediate impulse, and again, this is just a result of like dis disciplinary disposition that you acquire, um, is not to figure out if they're true or false, but to look for other points when we've told similar stories around technology. And the story in the, the 1800s around electricity is not about enhancement. It is all about restoration. Um, you are an office worker. Um, you are doing brain work all day and you have become divorced from physical reality. You, you're not, uh, people are moving to cities. Um, they're doing different types of work. They're not working uh, in agrarian contexts anymore. Their, their, their bodies, this is the story, right? Whether it's, you know, how much it maps onto like, you know, whatever statistically you can point to, but um, the story that's told around medical electricity is um, your body has been uh, enfeebled by this sort of work and you're suffering all these maladies as a result and electricity can restore you back to your, your normal functioning that you were in before modern life afflicted you in this way. Right. So, um, whether that's like, whether that story was right at the time, um, it, it resonated with people, right. Which meant it was, it was relativistically true to people or it was true, um, to their, their lived experience in some way. Um, and I think, uh, this story that, uh, that, in, that unfolds an immersion narrative and, and the, the, the story that, that you're telling around haptics 
um, there's there's definitely elements of truth to it, but I'm I'm not very good at figuring out if it's a true story or not. I'm I think a little bit uh, better trained to try to figure out if it's a story that we've told before and and identify points of continuity and points of um, of conflict with those those previous narratives, right? So if we're trying to my goal is to try to figure out like what has touched technology, what role has it been assigned. Um, culturally in the past and how does that relate to its role now and um constance Klassen's work i think is really excellent uh, but that i that that crisis narrative around touch is a recurrent narrative um if we go back to the 1970s uh, ashley montague's untouching the human significance of the skin is all about a crisis of touching um so was the crisis more true in the 1970s there was a movement to to attempt to um to alleviate that crisis through things like touch therapy. Um, how does, uh, and this is a question that I, I don't adequately answer in the book is, you know, it's a big book, but, and I, I don't talk about everything. Um, how does that crisis relate to this crisis? Are we still in that crisis or not? Um, I mean, these are all, I think, productive questions to push on, but what I would emphasize is just that the crisis narrative is one that, that keeps coming back. And then a question I have with haptics specific to your point is, and, and I really don't know the answer to this. Um, does the, the narrative is all well and good, but do vibrating watches, uh, do vibrating phones, uh, uh, do they alleviate that crisis or not? Right. And this is where the promise, uh, this is where the promise, the rubber has to meet the road with the promise. Right. Or is that crisis only alleviated once we can put on a haptic bodysuit? that doesn't feel super artificial to wear, that doesn't, you know, that isn't really uncomfortable to wear um, and just step seamlessly into a virtual world. Is that, will the crisis only have been alleviated once we can do that? Um, or are all these more uh, uh, more basic, sort of the lower hanging fruit that you described earlier, are, are these all effective ways of alleviating that crisis or not? I mean, again, I don't have the answer to that, but that's just yeah. how I would, I would try to think through the question a little bit more. That's really, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it's also, it might come down again to semantics because it might be that because the definition of what we include in haptics changes, it could be that what we define as haptics is that which is missing from modern <laughs> technology. <clears throat> and it's as long as there's something missing from this totally transportive experience we're going to say that, you know, we're in crisis because we aren't getting back to this kind of pure, direct knowledge of the physical world. Um, and it's also interesting, your point about restoration and in particular, a restoration of more primitive or animalistic values or agrarian values like these, these lost kind of uh, modes of interacting with the world that haptics will restore those lost modes and, and, and. Um, I, I didn't make that connection with the electrotactile interface. That's very interesting. But then in the middle, you have a more this more enlightenment approach with both the cartographic approach of uh, psychophysics and then the link the psycholinguistic approach that seems to be a little bit divorced from the promise of touch as a rest restorative or technologized touch as a restorative technology. Yeah, I mean they're not they're not um, the experimentals psychologists in the, uh, the late 1900s that, to, in my reading, they're not imagining practical applications for this technology, right? It's a self-justifying end, right? Which is a lot of like, a lot of, uh, 
a lot of research is like the ends are self-justifying. We want to answer this question because we need to answer this question, right? Like it, and it becomes almost like a, in Weber's work, it's obsessive for him, right? Like he needs to keep doing these experiments. He needs to keep banging his thumb with a hammer and counting the seconds it takes him to feel the pain. Um, but then for, you know, for, for Gildard, um, he, he is thinking about, um, it, at least in the long horizon, the short horizon for him is like these, these really practical applications in military communication. Um, but for a long horizon, um, Gildard does see that we're in, we're in a crisis moment. Um, he does see that, that we have, um, you know, this, this idea of information overload, um, is, is really comes out of his work. This idea that, um, there's just too many. Think about it, this is like he's writing in the 50s. So this is uh, radios in its heyday. Uh, it's er- early on uh, in television. Um, we're well into films maturity, um, and and we're uh, we're also deeply immersed in print culture, right? So there's more magazines um, in circulation than there had been, you know, 50 years prior to that. So this idea of an overburdening and a search for alternative communication channels, like I do think there's a bit of a of a continuity with it in terms of a struggle. Right. Um, and then that nostalgic dimension that you point to. I mean, this is another thing that's really fascinating to me about touch is it becomes this marker of, like in our cultural memory of a time before. Right. Like a less sophisticated time that maybe we can get back to. Mm-hmm. Right? It's such a romantic story. Mm-hmm. And there's a romance, too, around uh, teleportation. Like I can be with my loved ones, you know, and that story just becomes more and more compelling, the more fractured our families and social circles become. Yeah, absolutely. Why, like, why this dream at this time, right? Um, and and as we are, you know, increasingly uh, being required to uh, to move for our jobs, as we are increasingly, you know, expected to, to be, you know, labor is expected to be mobile. Um, uh, this this technology becomes sort of a cell for that. And then one of the things we haven't talked about, I don't know uh, how much you want to get into it. Uh, is this section on on teledildonics and cybersex because that that narrative is exactly uh, is mobilized uh, there as well. So um, the real touch uh, cybersex device uh, initially is you know this device that's sold to people that they can use um, to watch uh, porn and then also feel porn. But then later on, real touch is trying to justify uh, what what you can use the device for other than porn. And they say, well, we're going to give these devices to military families to alleviate the, you know, the strains of, uh, you know, uh, people having to be deployed and missing their loved ones. Now you can log on, you can have cyber sex with your partner. Um, won't this be great? We're doing a wonderful thing to help, help our troops, right? Support our troops. And it gets framed in this very patriotic use of this, of this cyber sex device that up till that point has been used, uh, exclusively for, you know, for porn. That's, that's really interesting. Um, but I, I don't actually think that's, a crazy thought either. I mean, again, from the inside out, not looking at the narrative in a dispassionate way, but being bought in, it seems to me to be, I guess, an inspired application of haptics. You know, it's a key part of human experience that people are missing in some cases. And again, this restorative value comes into play. I'm interested in this restorative value. Can you talk more about the social interaction components? As you looked at kind of this whole archaeology or landscape, what is the narrative around social touch and how haptic technology enables people to touch each other specifically and um, how that benefits people? That's an interesting, at this point, sort of an interesting gap in the the, the research, right? Like I think a lot of the, the research has been 
um, has been focused on, or at least my, my, maybe my, uh, the archive that I looked at, uh, it was really focused on these sort of technical dimensions of the devices and trying to like refine the technical components, um, with, with increasing precision and not quite as much on the, uh, empirical, like what do these technologies do when they're out in the world? Uh, and I think one of the, that's one of the challenges is that the technologies for the most part, other than those applications that we've talked about, haven't really been out in the world, right? So there's a challenge to like, how do we, how do we study the social life of a thing that hasn't really been domesticated yet? Um, so I think there's, there's sort of a gap in our understanding of what happened, how these, if the, the claim is that these technologies are going to transform social relations. Um, do we have maybe empirical validation for these, uh, for those claims? Well, not yet because, uh, it's really, you know, hard to get, uh, a haptic device again, that has a lot more complexity than a vibrating watch or a vibrating phone or a vibrating video game controller. And I'll just plug really quickly, um, the work that's being done uh, by Carrie Jewett at the InTouch lab at, at, um, University College London which is trying to do this iterative prototyping and give people um, fairly simple haptic devices and just study how um, those devices change their social interactions and also reflexively change the way that they understand touch. And Carrie is, uh, and, and her team there are really gifted um, uh, social scientists. So they're really trained at studying like the, how the introduction of a variable impacts people's, um, people's experience of that, you know, that variable of that thing. Um, so I think we're starting to see that research, and and I'm sure there's other uh, other research going on currently that I, that I'm not aware of. But I think we're starting to see more of that research. But up till this point, I think it's largely been sort of, um, in a lot of cases, engineers writing about what they hope, how they imagine this technology will impact sociability, hmm. but but maybe lacking proof of that effect. Yeah, sure. But as far as the narrative goes, I mean, are they anticipating? this kind of revolutionary effect on oh, inter interpersonal communication? Absolutely. Is that part of the narrative? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Like from day one, um, which is again, like another part of what makes this fascinating uh, in, you know, in the 1970s, um, Mike, Michael Knoll is claiming that once this technology is before they're calling it haptics technology, he's calling it tactile man uh, machine communication. Um, once this technology becomes really highly developed, um, becomes widely deployed, it is going to upend everything. And there's a couple other uh, articles from the 70s that tell a similar story. Uh, it's gonna change commerce, it's gonna change how we shop, uh, it's gonna change how we socialize, uh, why transport uh, Why transport uh, atoms when you can transmit bits instead, right? Why transmit people when you can transport signals instead, you can send signals in place of people. So mm -hmm. the effects of the technology, the forecasted effects of the technology are immense and I think quite justifiably so, right? Like if if haptics is ever able to deliver on this promise, um, I mean, I think my suspicion is that it will be really revolutionary. Um, the, this, the sort of open question, the question that I think is gonna remain open for a while is will it ever deliver on that, that long horizon promise of, you know, one-to-one -one embodied um, experience in a computer generated environment or will we will we be harvesting the low hanging fruit that you talked about for you know another couple of decades yeah and, and taking the very long view it doesn't even matter if it happens in the next couple of decades but again like if you just define haptics as a world in which 
geography and distance doesn't matter because we can do everything we need to do with bits. If you just define it that way and you look at Moore's law and the other curves of technological development, you can see the endpoint as that, right? Like barring some big disaster or some limitation uh, inherent to the natural law of the universe that we, we don't see yet. We just see it progressing there. Yeah. I, you know, I struggle with this question a lot and my suspicion, like the, here, so here's the, 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 the thing that you have that I think is you have to challenge yourself to imagine. Um, and, and this is a, a really hard exercise. Um, imagine a technology that doesn't exist yet, but also imagine how it would get there. And I think with haptics, like the only way it gets there is making an end run around the body, right? Making an end run around um, the messiness of the tactile senses and just going straight to BCI, going straight to brain computer interface, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Directly stimulating the areas of the brain responsible for tactile and haptic perception. Um, I have a very hard time. And again, like as, as a not engineer, so maybe my not engineer brain has a limited imagination, but I have a really hard time imagining how we get to like ready player one um, level of good, which isn't even that good, right? Like the haptic bodysuit in ready player one isn't, doesn't do what I think it gets talked about as doing Mm-mm. when, when, you know, when people try to, Oh yeah, it's transmitting touch. It's very realistic. Well, I, I don't, first of all, it, there's never talked about how it actually works, right? Like what, what mechanisms would that device have to have in place in order to do the things and does it feel as real as it's depicted as feeling in the film? There's a whole conversation we could have about cinematic depictions of haptics technologies and how they, you should write that book. What's that? You got, you got to write that book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, start, starting with, uh, starting with lawnmower man. Right. Right. <laughs> Is that really the beginning? I don't know. You were able to dig so deep with your archive. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's even earlier ones. Yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying and I kind of, go that direction too with my thinking in terms of BCI, but then, and I'm probably getting out of my depth here, but I've read some research on haptic perception that indicates that the peripheral nervous system is the key part of the process and that you can't represent all haptic sensation with brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't work that yeah. way. And so there may be some combination of BCI and peripheral stimulation that you need to achieve this dream of perfect immersion. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely wasn't claiming that BCI could do it, but in comparison to everything else that I like that I could imagine as doing it right like, and and this is why I think the cultural question is really important, because uh, with other technologies, the standard hasn't been as good as real life, Mm -hmm. right? Like the telephone, the standard isn't as good as real life. Um, Telephone calls, audio quality has gotten actively worse, right? Like, Smartphones have really poor audio quality um, in comparison to like older, you know, flip phones, um, you know, sometimes. Right. It's funny because you're right that it's obviously not it's not a simulation of real life, but the rhetoric is often that way. Like I think of RCA and like the sound of his master's voice mm-hmm. or, you know, I remember when my dad got an HDTV, he was watching a sports event. He's like, it's like you're there. Like that was his <laughs> phrase. That was just, it was such an intense visual experience that he just proceeded to this extreme. Now it's not obviously not like you're there, but, but people are, are much more willing maybe to be forgiving about the shortcomings of visual and audio displays 
for some reason, there's something about their pre-existing assumptions of what haptics should be that often haptic displays are just disappointing. Yeah. I don't know kind of why that is and why that's different for haptics than the other two modalities, but it's really caused a lot of, uh, a lot of pain for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think you, you sort of identified, um, you identified it with, you know, with your examples, right? So, um, audio technology doesn't get there on its own. It doesn't get to be good enough on its own. It doesn't get there without the cultural project emerging alongside it, right? Without like a, a long history of attempts at marketing audio technology, um, which, you know, we could, it's like someone else's book. Um, and, and, you know, a, a lot of books that have been written about, um, about the history of, uh, of audio technology. Um, and same thing with, uh, with image technology and thinking, of one example in particular that I use when I when I talk about uh, the telephone to my students, the AT and T uh, reach out and touch someone uh, campaign, right? This idea that um, it's a, a good thing that you can have an emotional um, connection to a person over the telephone. So I show those ads in my classes, and one of the things that's easy to forget about those ads is they were showing people able to hear like minute details on the other end of the line. Right. So as a way of saying you had to, how do we convince people to make long distance phone calls? Basically, it's AT&T's goal, right, to spend money on long distance phone calls. Well, you have to you have to convince them that it's a good enough experience. Right. That that, that experience of hearing someone's voice is good enough to have an effective connection. You know, a feeling, a feeling like you're touching that person through the, the, the telephone with with image and sound media. These were iterative steps. Um, it's just that we're living in the wake of all those steps. It's fascinating because as you're speaking, I'm, I'm realizing that a lot of the narrative around visual and audio technologies, in order to sell them, they co-opt haptic metaphors and ideas. Like even just being there, that, that means your, your body's transported um, or reaching out and touch someone when it has nothing to do with touch at all. It's all audio. And then I was remembering, I can't remember what long distance company it was with the falling pin. It was Sprint, right? Mm-hmm. The the slow motion falling pin and you see the tip of the pin hit hit a surface and bounce and there's a little sound. And, you know, obviously that to me, that has like a very tactile quality to it, like a pin, right? You know how that feels and you, it's like a very precise little point. Um, and so that you could probably do a whole paper on just the rhetoric of selling haptics is even co-opted by, by other media yeah, because it's just so powerful. Absolutely. And I think, I think that, you know, the reach out and touch someone campaign is so, is so instructive for me in part because it was, um, inspired and developed by Marshall McLuhan, um, who had, uh, you know, a decade before that, who had called television a tactile medium. Um, really, really famously and confoundingly for people who study touch and, uh, and media theory. Um, and he had, you know, a very uh, well-developed theory of, of why it was, um, why you could touch through seeing, right? It's a very uh, old notion of, of visuality that you, that the eye operates like a finger and sort of scans across the image. Um, the eye operates as a form of seeing operates as a form of touching. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's this, this attempt to load, um, to load the other senses, to make audio visual media do what they can't do. Right. Um, it's, it, it sort of papers over, uh, like when your dad says it's like being there, um, he's, you know, forgetting that being there, um, at a sporting event involves so much touch, right? Like sitting in the seat crowded on top of people, uh, you know, eating popcorn or pretzels, whatever, 
you know, it's it's a multi-sensory, a richly multi-sensory experience. The noise of the crowd that actually a lot of times gets filtered out um, in selecting what gets transmitted through that um, that audiovisual, you know, uh, representation. So that's a, a long history of audiovisual media claiming to be able to compress all the data of experience through image and sound, right? That we've we've kind of bought into. Yeah, yeah, we have. And then that might be part of what gives rise to the haptic narrative about restoration, right? Because we've bought into what what I perceive as kind of a, a media narrative that isn't true. So what do you think about how this relates to AI and robots that touch and interact in, haptically with intelligent agents? So you're talking about robots, uh, we're talking about not where we're using uh, robots to touch rather than uh, relaying that information back back to a human. It's an autonomous robot that 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 basically in, interacts tactually with the world. Yeah, Is that- and and with people, I guess. So yeah, so you have this um, this older idea of the tactile human machine interface, but um, in a world where the machine is an autonomous agent and mm-hmm. um, in many ways on the same level as us, maybe in terms of autonomy and and even rights but at the same time is maybe more powerful in other ways. And I mean, I just see this a lot, a lot of anxiety and discussion around like how we relate to these things that we know we're about to create. And I'm really interested in the tactile dimension of that. Like when robots have a sense of touch, when we have a need to interact with them emotionally, is the haptic interaction a key part of that modality of interaction? Yeah. What do you think? Is that, so is that for us or is that for the robot? I mean, I, I, I think for us, absolutely. Right. And I think a lot of um, a lot of people's anxieties about um, uh, about robots concerns exactly that, like that insertion of something autonomous um, that's physically active uh, in, into their lives. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing that thing and interacting with that thing, uh, how, how comfortable are they uh, with, with that? And that's a question that, again, I think is a matter of like cultural training and, and probably adjustment to the technology. I'm a little bit late to the game on this because I don't have a Roomba. But uh, last week I, uh, when I was hurricane evacuated, uh, I stayed in someone's house that has a Roomba and the Roomba activated. And again, like I know like Roombas have been around for a while, but this was my first experience just sort of hanging out while one was doing its thing. And it was two hours of the Roomba, you know, running around autonomously uh, around the space uh, and just sort of, you know, realizing that, uh, okay, that device is, uh, is, is, is acting and active in my space and I have to relate to it. And the cat that's running around has to relate to it. The dog has to relate to it. Um, And and, and that's non-threatening. But then um, the Roomba lawnmower, right? Like the automatic lawnmower that will act like a Roomba. Um, which is basically a spinning death machine, right? Um, potentially, that 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 raises a different set of questions, right? And it, this notion of like physical vulnerability that we have in our interactions with these machines—that again, like you can't divorce from our long cultural imaginary about um, our our relationship with and our fear of of you know autonomous robots. Right, and we fear them because they're well. We use the phrase like they're unfeeling machines, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and you you know that if the Roomba or the lawnmower came after you and you you hit it, it's not going to recoil in pain, which is scary because that's a tool that you would use if a being was was encroaching on your space and making you feel threatened. So it's scary that that would be taken away from you, right? 
So I just wonder if like we could imagine a haptic interface or just not a haptic interface, but a, a modality of haptic interaction with robots that would help us integrate them into our social lives. So I think one of the ways that we could, uh, that, that maybe we we differ on this is around the question of inevitability, right? So like, are the, in, are the is the presence of increasingly complicated, um, uh, increasingly autonomous robots like inevitable in our lives? Um, and it's a sort of similar question with the inevitability of haptics. Like, is it is it a question of the progress of the technology or, uh, you know, this deterministic narrative or does culture play a really strong role in that, right? So um, on the one hand, uh, you know, you can say that the technology might get there, um, but on the other hand, you can say that people's level of comfort might, it, you know, it might progress, but it also might reach a point where we just level off and say, um, you know what, we're not um, beyond a certain level of, um, uh, beyond a certain level of presence, we're not comfortable um, shaking hands with a robot or, you know what I mean? Having those sorts of interactions. I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking especially of uh, Kate Devlin's work on uh, on sex robots um, and the sort of anxieties around um, around sex robots and this again that cultural imaginary of, of you know how we relate to those um, to those uh, autonomous devices. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely am bought into the inevitability narrative. I just see so much opportunity to make money opportunity to gain power in hierarchies that i just can't imagine that individuals won't continue developing these technologies taking advantage of them and then those technologies democratizing over time you know yeah yeah anyways you know that the challenge there is um is that to, to think of the ability that people have to sort of push back on those, those sorts of, of, of inevitabilities, right? So um, would we end up in a scenario where we have segregated spaces, right? Uh, spaces where robots freely circulate and interact with other robots and spaces where humans um, freely interact, uh, circulate and interact with other humans, but the points of interface between those two, uh, and I'm thinking especially of like uh, warehouses, now where robots are like ubiquitous, right? Like sorting robots in a warehouse and how much interaction is there between the humans in those spaces and the robots in those spaces? Are the humans in those spaces comfortable interacting um, with the robots in those spaces? Same thing with um, uh, cleaning robots, uh, robots that come into, you know, clean, clean spaces and then displace um, human labor, right? So there's, we're not only talking about a social relationship, but like, as, as you pointed out, we're also talking about an economic relationship. And if people feel economically threatened um, by those those technologies, then their you know their their level of social comfort with them might also be be impacted. Yeah, yeah. Big questions. Big questions. But this is why I love having you on because it's rare to get this esoteric, I guess, and it's fun. <laughs> so, any any closing thoughts or final remarks before we close it up? No, I just uh, you know want to say that it's really exciting to have this conversation um, in in public with you. I mean, you and I've spoken uh, you know uh, privately before, but it's really exciting to have this this level of exchange and um, and and really see see a little bit of a moment in this field right now where people are starting to become aware of it as a as a field, not just that speaks to itself, but also that speaks to the public, right? And has this. And it grapples with this question of like, okay, how do we translate um, what we're doing 
out of work, like everyone who works in, in, in the haptic space works there because they're really enthusiastic about the project, right? This is the one thing that sort of oozes from people who do this work. And the question of like how you translate that enthusiasm for folks who aren't necessarily in that space is, is one that I think people are, are starting to grapple with and, and come up with new and pretty exciting answers for. So I'm excited to be part of that conversation. Awesome. And, and a really good way to get started with that is to read Archaeologies of Touch. I have to plug you for you for a minute. Thank you. I appreciate that. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Where can we find you? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter. There's not a, not a lot of haptics people on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and uh, yeah, pretty active on Twitter. Uh, and you can uh, you can check out my uh, my bio. Uh, all my work is uh, is available through my faculty bio page at the College of Charleston. So yeah, that's where I live. All right. Well, thank you, David. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2019, Dave Birnbaum.